This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. In China, religion, like much else, is complicated. Christians are persecuted, yet China makes more Bibles than any country on earth, most in Chinese language. Islam is protected officially in China. By some counts, there are more Muslims in the country than Saudi Arabia. Yet China's Uyghur population is persecuted, with estimates of even a million citizens in detention. Tuesday is the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, and President Xi Jinping's support of so-called patriotic religion and repression of so-called disloyal religion is a defining issue of our times. We welcome three experts to the God Forbid panel on this today. Karen Lai is Associate Professor of Confucian and Taoist Philosophy at the University of New South Wales. She's the author of Introduction to Chinese Philosophy, and she's the editor of Cultivating a Good Life in Early Chinese and Ancient Greek Philosophy. In our Sydney studio, Karen Lai, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you very much. Good to be here, James. And in Perth, Yu Tao is a lecturer and coordinator of Chinese studies at the University of Western Australia. He's an expert on religion in contemporary China, degrees from Oxford, Cambridge, Peking University, just back from Shanghai. Now in ABC Perth, Yu Tao, welcome home and welcome to God Forbid. Thank you for having me, James. And Benjamin Penny is with us, the Associate Professor and Senior Research Fellow at the Australian Centre for China in the World at the Australian National University. He studied China at universities of Cambridge, Kyoto and Peking, an expert on Taoism and the new religions of China, the author of The Religion of Falun Gong, among other titles, from the ANU's studio. Benjamin Penny, welcome to God Forbid. Thanks, James. So, Ben, you first. When you first started studying China, is it fair to say China was perceived as one of the most godless, irreligious places on earth? Well, yes, certainly. I'm old enough to have started university in 1979. China was just coming out of the Cultural Revolution years. People saw temples being turned into factories, things being knocked over, red guards on the streets and so forth. Yeah, it was thought of as being the place that had rid uh, a whole country of religion, but things change. Utah, what did the Cultural Revolution mean for religious people in the 60s and 70s? Some people have called it the most radical suppression of religion in human history. Yes, indeed. And actually, at that time, the government tried to wipe out the entire sort of religious landscapes in the Chinese society. But uh, what's ironic was at some places where the most severe, actually today you see the biggest religious revival there. Wow, the vacuum simply sucked in religion. Well, yeah. Karen Lai, if we think of values, uh, we think of American values as freedom and individualism, Australian values as fergo egalitarianism, mm-hmm. how would you describe traditional Chinese values? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the key values would be harmony. In Chinese thought, relationships is one of the most prominent emphases. That's relationships with your parents, with your nature, with your government, with your God, everything. That's right, more broadly. And I I probably wouldn't say with your God. in, In Chinese philosophy, the relevant term would be heaven, which covers a whole range of things. It is, I suspect, decidedly not an anthropomorphic God, not conceived of in spirit terms, but much more broadly in terms of the underlying cosmological structure, including seasons, forces, and so on and so forth. 
And you say it's not an anthropomorphic spirit-based God, but there is spirit worship and spirit veneration? There definitely is, but not that one particular being that's unchanging and that it's transcendent. There'd be spirits of people who have passed and so on and so forth. And the Chinese communists have a complex relationship with these spirits? <laughs> I don't know. Someone else would answer that. <laughs> well, we, we will get to Benjamin Penny and Yu Chao on it later, but it is God forbid. We are looking at China and up next the attitude of the Chinese Communist government to what uh, Karen Lai was explaining, so-called traditional Chinese values. The Chinese philosopher, teacher and politician Confucius lived two and a half thousand years ago and became one of the most important and influential individuals in all human history. Karen Lai, we come straight back to you because this is your field. Who was Confucius and what is Confucianism? Well, Confucius was born in 551 BCE and he didn't know he would be the founder of Confucianism. So this is the founder of a tradition that, you know, has through many periods in Chinese history been a cornerstone of government, of social life, and that has informed the value systems of ordinary people. And much like Marxism is different to what Karl Marx imagined, mm. is it the same for Confucianism? Oh, definitely adapted and appropriated. And interestingly, we don't know what the man Confucius himself thought. The text is most closely associated with Confucius, the Analects, the conversations of Confucius. Bits of it were first composed 70 years after Confucius passed. Kind of like Christ. It may be that Confucius wasn't a Confucianist. Could be. And people who are Confucianists, whether or not Confucius agrees with them, what do they believe? The, some key tenets of Confucian philosophy include a commitment to universal human morality that is inherent in human nature and that these can be developed through a robust environment created by a very capable leader. So, Benjamin Penny, how does President Xi Jinping promote Confucianism? If you walk down any Chinese street, there are billboards almost everywhere that list the 12 core socialist values, so-called. And they are anodyne and rather dull, but they include things like uh, patriotism, harmony, truthfulness, being nice to your grandparents, that kind of thing. This is the morality which the government are trying to um, claim is both the morality that has been inherited from the glorious Chinese past but also the morality that the Chinese Communist Party now wants everybody in China to follow. Well, on that score, we spoke with Dr Delia Lin. She's a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. She told RN's Rowan Salmond that Confucianism is a philosophy, technically not a religion, yet the politically motivated revival of Confucianism is so strong, it has made China a kind of theocratic Confucian one-party state. Have a listen. 
Yes. So it's not kind of religion that we usually understand. Chinese government, of course, claims that it's a secular party. But the way that Confucianism works as a political theory, even throughout imperial China, it actually works as a religion in the sense that political legitimacy and moral authority are the same and one. It's a unifying force in the society and also it really focuses on the obedience that taps into everyday life that your behaviour needs to conform to a particular prescribed uh, moral code. And the sort of moral authority that a political leader assumes, it's very similar to what a religious leader would assume. Right. So this is quite different than uh, than what happened during the Cultural Revolution because at that time, Confucianism was not particularly well regarded by the Absolutely. Uh, CCP, was it? Yeah, it was condemned because at that time, the CCP wanted people to, to be transformed into revolutionary beings. So they didn't want people to hold on to their traditions and wanted people to establish a new kind of ideological doctrine or orthodoxy, which was communism. So what's changed between then and now? Uh, so now, after the Cultural Revolution ended in 1976, then under Deng Xiaoping, traditions enjoyed a revival. Religion also enjoyed revival as well. Uh, then Confucianism was revived to a great extent but really to the full throttle under Xi Jinping, and again for political reasons. Because Xi Jinping's dream is the China dream, and China would turn into a very strong nation. So what Xi Jinping wanted is for Communist Party to enjoy this perennial rule, but also produce a reality of the China model. And his rationale is this cultural determinism to say that somehow China has a different ruling bloodline that it was based on Confucianism and only one model of governing would suit China, not the liberal democracy. So that's why Confucianism is now being revived and also used as a kind of rationale for building this unique China political system. That's Dr Delia Lin from the University of Melbourne speaking with RN's Rowan Salmond. Well, Professor Benjamin Penny, what do you make of that? James, I think that's fascinating what Delia was saying. I doubt that Xi Jinping or Hu Jintao, his predecessor as president who also claimed to love Confucianism, particularly care about them as philosophies. They're just very, very useful to put out as being a, an official teaching that encourages what they would call a harmonious society, meaning a society that doesn't cause trouble, a polity that doesn't rebel, that kind of thing. That's not a flattering picture, though, because when you think of other alternate philosophies, like uh, uh, American Jeffersonian-style democracy and, say, a man like Ronald Reagan, you know that in his bones that was his uh, profound belief, almost spiritual belief, that what he was doing was the right and good and moral thing rather than a tool to achieve political ends. Sure, that's true. Um, I'm a cynic. Uh, I, I, I think that, you know, ideology in China has been drained away from the party many years ago. The so-called Chinese Communist Party is about as communist as any political party in Australia. What the Chinese Communist Party are about is, is maintaining their own rule. Yu Tao, do you agree? Well, I think I want to emphasize that Regardless of Hu Jintao or Xi Jinping, I think this Confucian value is still pretty much in many Chinese people's way of life and their view of the world. So it's 
kind of a convenient tool for the government to use this. And lots of the values they want to emphasize is probably coincided with the Confucius value. Karen Lai, do you think uh, the Chinese government conforms with some principles of Confucian tradition, maybe contradicts others? I would describe the practice as cherry-picking. What is there in Confucianism? What's going to work for us? Let's use it. So I'd like to go back to uh, Delia's comments on political legitimacy and moral authority, and that is leadership by modelling one's behaviour. So Do as I do, not do as I say. Exactly. So there's great responsibility placed on the sage kings. Responsibility is the other side of political legitimacy. In Confucianism, a very strong theme is also that of reciprocity. You are the person with power. I look at you and... I imitate, you know, if if you're good and kind, I tend to respond in that way too. So that kind of modeling um, the requirement for leaders to lead exemplary lives will be very important for China on the national and international stage. But doesn't China, if it had a choice, wouldn't it prefer the people do as they say, not do as they do? Well, this goes back to the point I made about cherry picking. You, <laughs> you, you pull out which strands work for you best. Yes. Also, let's not forget that the Confucianism that we know today and the Communist Party know today uh, is actually a result of the many cherry pickings throughout the history. The version of Confucianism that we are familiar today, they were selected by generations of rulers in China, and they didn't probably know what, what democracy is. So I think this also built into today's cultural landscape or moral landscape of Confucianism. On RN, it's God forbid we're with Karen Lai, Associate Professor of Confucian and Taoist Philosophy at the University of New South Wales, Yu Tao, Lecturer and Coordinator of Chinese Studies at the University of Western Australia, and Professor Benjamin Penny, Senior Research Fellow at the ANU's Australian Centre for China and the World. And for more on Confucius, do catch Soul Search at Meredith Lake with a special program on Sunday or on the ABC Listen app. Next, we turn to the complex relationship between Marxism and organised religion in China. Religion used to be banned in China. Now, on paper, at least the five legal religions are protected in the Constitution. Catholic, Protestant, Taoist, Buddhist and Muslim. But you can only worship at an approved or so-called patriotic church or temple or mosque. And can only be with an authorised imam, priest or monk. Yu Tao, you say the Chinese Communist Party's mistrust of religion has much more to do with Chinese history than with European Marxist-Leninism. Why? Because confrontation between the Communist Party and religions, I doubt how much of that is actually a result of ideological conflicts. The party, what it really fears is independent uh, social organization that the party state cannot control. If religion survived, During the very harsh Cultural Revolution, if I were a governor in China, I would certainly understand uh, religious groups will be turned into mobilization structures which might not be easy to be managed. So it's not so much what religions say about God, it's what they say about the faithful. Uh, Benjamin Penny, do you think the state tolerates some religions because 
it just can't eradicate them or does it see value in them? A bit of both. Religion is seen as an outgrowth of economic systems where people suffer. So the idea is when Marx said religion is the opiate of the masses, what was happening was that people were going to religion because their social conditions, economic conditions were bad. You get rid of the badness of those conditions, religion will disappear. In addition, their line is that if you did try to eradicate religion, what you'd end up with is backlash and that would be worse than the problem you were trying to solve in the first place. So on the one hand, there's this idea that you can support them in their death throes while society improves because they're going to die out anyway. <laughs> on the other hand, religions are seen as a useful tool for providing social welfare that the government itself either can't or doesn't want to do, as long as they do it under the conditions that the state approves of. And Karen Lai, how does Taoism fit into this? What is it and, and, and how does it fit into the landscape? Well, in terms of Taoist philosophy, traditionally, I think it embraces deep spirituality in the way it seeks to understand the world and through harnessing forces such as energy, force, the qi that uh, we find in the phrase qigong, in harnessing those inner resources, we make the most of our lives to deal with what goes on. And this tunes into what Benjamin was saying, if it's harmless, if that makes them better and, you know, feel feel better, uh, why, not, why not have it? Yes. Benjamin Penny, does that mean Taoism doesn't have the capacity to mobilise the faithful in a way that the Chinese authorities would be worried with Islam or Christianity? I agree very much with what Karen said about Taoism as it exists in China today. You've got to make a distinction between Taoist philosophy and Taoist religion. Mm. Uh, but Taoism, as it exists in China today, religiously, is a temple religion. People go, they pray it in front of gods and so on. And it's very mild and it's rather controlled. That's not to say, though, that in history it had that role. In fact, one of the things that the Communist Party fears most is what some scholars call the religious revolt spectre. Now, this is uh, the idea that throughout Chinese history, and here we can go back at least 2,000 years, Various revolts, uprisings, revolutions against various emperors and regimes were run by religious groups. They went by wonderful names such as the Yellow Turbans mm. and the Red Eyebrows and so on, right up until the 19th century with the Taiping Uprising and the Boxer Rebellion and so on. And the Taiping Uprising, the outcome was in a part of China, a Christian indigenous Chinese theocratic dictatorship, would you call it? Is that Absolutely. Right? These days, if the typing group arose, we'd say, oh, they're a, they're a novel form of Christianity, um, a Protestant form of Christianity. They just happened to believe, their leader happened to believe that he was the younger brother of Jesus. But these uprisings tended to be led by religious figures. And the Communist Party within their own historiography, their own idea of their own legitimacy comes from being a peasant uprising, like all these other peasant uprisings, but they are the pure one because they are not led by a religious figure. So there is deeply embedded in Chinese political thought and Chinese political history this idea that religious uprisings or, more properly, uprisings of peasants led by religious leaders can be very dangerous. And is, I actually think this is part of the reason why 
the Chinese government reacted so strongly against Falun Gong. Mm. Is this why the Chinese government has two categories for outlawed religions, that is the peasant superstitions and the evil cults, both of which are different but both of which are repressed by the government? That's true. Um, Superstition, so the three categories that you get in China are religions, which are the five that you mentioned, which are orthodox organized religions or something like that with texts and with temples and with clergy. Catholic, Protestant, Taoist, Buddhist, Muslim. You got it. And then you've got the vast range of popular religious beliefs in China that have, you know, pervade the whole life. And these go from um, belief in dragon kings in the rivers, praying for rain, feng shui, telling fortunes, all of that kind of stuff. They're classified as superstitions, usually preceded in China by the word feudal, feudal superstitions. And they're considered to be fake superstitions, not real. That's right. These are credulous people believing credulous things. You don't actually have to punish those people terribly badly. You just have to educate them. And when you educate them in a proper scientific viewpoint, they'll stop doing it because they'll realize it's nonsense. The third category, though, is the one that has caused a lot of ruckus in the last 20-odd years, which is what the Chinese government wrongly translates as evil cult. The word in Chinese actually means something like heterodox belief. Uh, This is a very old category in, in Chinese government and religion. Heterodox beliefs are not nonsense. The problem with a heterodox belief is that the spirits or the practices or whatever it does are actually powerful. They are actually real. The problem with them is that they're not government-sanctioned because of its rebellious nature or whatever. And in that category, the most two most famous ones at the moment are Falun Gong and the Church of Almighty God, who have been repressed as well. Why is Falun Gong perceived as rebellious when doesn't it just have an emphasis on gentle exercise and harmony and love? Well... They have their own interpretations of those words, James. Uh, My own view is the reason it's regarded as rebellious is because it became political. And it became political because the Chinese government repressed it. In my reading of Falun Gong material before 1999, when the government took action against them, it wasn't particularly anti-government at all. In fact, for the first few years of its life, it was explicitly supported by the government. What happened was that it got a bit big, Its leader got a bit powerful. He started saying things that were a bit further out than he had said before. And the government got very worried when they ran a very, very large demonstration in the centre of Peking that the government didn't know was going to happen. Yu Tao, what do you say in Perth on this? Yeah, I think the key here is to understand that China absolutely, you know, consider religious freedom as a fundamental citizen's right. And that stays quite clear in China's constitution. And the Communist Party emphasized that quite a lot. But the key here is that the Chinese state, they only protect what they describe as the normal religious activities and belief. So these are religious uh, you know, belong to the five traditions we said, and not only that, uh, but also, you know, priests, which are recognized by the state and in venues recognized by the state. So if you're doing this right, uh, if you tick all the boxes, then actually uh, religious are 
protected in China. But the challenge here is that what is normal and what is not normal is not always clear. And it changes because the government's priority changes because the international, you know, political atmosphere can change from time to time. And in the particular case of Falun Gong, when any organization, religious or not, mobilized thousands of people in the center of Beijing, I don't think the Chinese government will react in any way different than the way that react to uh, Falun Gong. You know, but the legal system here is that they only protect the normal religious beliefs and organizations, and what is normal and what is not normal. As I said, it's、uh, not clear cut, and it change all the time, and that make people on the local level、uh, a little bit confused and difficult to predict what will be happen to their belief systems or belief groups there.、Um, Benjamin Penny, would that be why, for example, the Chinese government? Tolerates, say, Tibetan Buddhism among Han Chinese, but strictly controls Tibetan Buddhism in Tibet itself. Tibetan Buddhism is fine as a religious belief, but as an ethnic identity, which facilitates organisation and resistance and separatism, well, that's not on. I think that's pretty much the case. To a large extent, the Chinese concern with. Islam and with Tibetan Buddhism is partly about ethnic identity, about separatism. They want to control these、uh, peoples, and they see the the particular religion they have possibly being used in a way that is、uh, favouring、um, separatist groups. So, with the Uyghurs, for example, the Chinese government is more worried that they'll follow Turkey than Muhammad. Well, Turkey or other forms of Islam, which would encourage the people of Xinjiang to, you know, think about their country as East Turkestan rather than the Xinjiang Autonomous Region of China. To get back to Tibetan Buddhism, though, I mean, it's probably worth noting that when Xi Jinping came to power, a lot of Buddhists, in, in particular Tibetan Buddhists, were very, very optimistic.、Um, Xi Jinping's father, a guy called Xi Jongshun. Was a communist in the forties and fifties and so forth. He was given the job when the young Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, when he was a young man, came to Peking. He was given the job of looking after him, and apparently they got on terrifically well. And the Dalai Lama gave him a gift of a Western watch. I think it was an Omega watch. And apparently, to the day he died, Xi Jinping's father wore this watch and told people that it was given to him by the Dalai Lama. His wife,、uh, Xi Jinping's mother, is said to have been a follower of Tibetan Buddhism and was buried with full Tibetan Buddhist rites. And it's also said that Xi Jinping's wife, the very wonderful Peng Liyuan, famous singer and you know celebrity, is also very sympathetic to Tibetan Buddhism. So people thought that、uh, things would get better under Xi Jinping, but unfortunately, they haven't. Wow! On our end, it is God forbid. We are with Benjamin Penny, Yu Tao, and Karen Lai. Well, back to the question of Islam in China. This week, you may have seen、uh, that footage, drone footage, released showing hundreds of blindfolded and bound men kneeling on the floor, heads shaved, in bright vests, before being led away by police. Some estimates have over a million Uyghur Muslims being detained in mass detention centres. And Four Corners did an expose on this. You may have seen reporter Sophie McNeil, and she spoke about it with RN's Fran Kelly. 
the program is so huge, you can see it from space. And so we have identified more than 100 re-education camps and suspected detention sites across the province. Right now, the estimate that there is more than 1 million Uyghurs in these facilities. Now, there's only 11 million Uyghurs, so it's a huge number of that population that is being rounded up and sent off to these camps. And there is just no avenue for these people to appeal. And people are targeted for different things. It could be, you could be seen as being a religious person. You might have studied in Egypt. You could have travelled to Dubai. Any link that the Chinese government sees as being linked to Islam, they say that you are a suspected extremist and you need to go to these camps. And people go in and the numbers that have come out, Fran, is very few. So it's, it's hard to get evidence, but it is slowly coming out. Were you able to find out what's going on in these camps, what's happening to people in these camps? Indoctrination. The Chinese have moved from denying these camps exist to justifying why they're doing it. So they've done these incredibly slick propaganda videos where they get Uyghurs to sit there and say, you know, I was at risk of extremism and now I've done my Chinese Mandarin uh, language classes and I've learnt the error of my ways and now I will, you know... Um, be a loyal uh, citizen of the state. And so it's it's all about that they see religion as a, as a threat to the Communist Party rule. So it's all about trying to remove that threat. You've spoken to family members here of people who have been taken into detention. Do they Are they hearing, able to hear anything from their relatives about what is going on? What did they tell you? It's very hard to communicate with uh, relatives who are stuck in Xinjiang because the Chinese government monitors all communication. And if you are uh, seen to be communicating with people overseas, that is enough of a reason to get sent to a camp. There are some very brave people who spoke to us who talk about how they contact their relatives. And this is a huge risk for them, but they're at a point of absolute desperation. There's a young man in Adelaide whose wife has been sentenced to seven years in jail because she studied in Egypt. People are just absolutely at wit's sense. They don't know what to do. They've, they've tried to get help from the Australian government. They've gone to the Chinese authorities. They've done everything they can and they're speaking out now because they feel the only thing that is going to stop China doing this is global international pressure. That's Four Corners reporter Sophie McNeil speaking with RN's Fran Kelly. Well, you Tao, Muslims have been in China for something like one and a half, what, 1,400 years. Why does the state fear them so much? I actually think it's too much simplification here if we assume that uh, what happens in Xinjiang is a problem with religion. There are many ethnic groups practice Islam in China. And what happens in Xinjiang, it's to be understood through the framework of national security. That's how the Chinese government uh, view the issue and how they manage it, because the Chinese government builds its legitimacy on national unity. Not only Chinese governments, but lots of people in different China cities, if you go to the street and ask them, uh, many people in China uh, think that national unity is quite an important thing to them. If we lost Xinjiang, or if you lost any other parts of China and let a piece of Chinese land become independent or goes to another country, I think it does not only lose that piece of land, it will lose the power. I don't think that's simply a religious thing. That's more like a national security concern there. Benjamin Penny, it sounds like what we used to hear in Indonesia, which is majority Muslim, you know, when it came to sort of East Timor separatism or Irian Jaya, they weren't particularly important places in and of themselves, but their separation, what it would represent, would be of significance to the national unity of the entire country. I think that's right. China does have a, an obsession with unity, not just national unity, but 
the government at least has an obsession with unity of thought and unity of practice. I mean, believe it or not, from the far edge of Xinjiang on the Russian border right through to parts of China that border North Korea, everything's on the same time zone. It's just completely impractical, but it has an obsession with unity. So it's like dark at a daytime hour and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people out in the far west live this bizarre life where they, at clock time, they get up at bizarre hours and go to bed at bizarre hours because that's Beijing clock time. <laughs> 3 p.m., it's time for bed. It was that kind of thing. <laughs> so, Karen Lai, their obsession with unity. Look, this all could come very generally under an obsession for harmony. If we don't look into the notion of harmony, we, we will think, oh, yeah, it means unity. You know, we'll, we'll sing the same song in the same voice. But there is a much more interesting conception of harmony is that we sing together but in different voices. And there is, I think, a lot of room for that in Chinese political ideology. Benjamin Penny, what is the government's attitude to Christianity and especially sinicizing, making Chinese Christianity? How does that work? Well, uh, there's been Christianity in China for a very long time, 400 and some years of Catholicism in China. And we also know that there were forms of Christianity in China during the Tang Dynasty in the, you know, the medieval times. It was a kind of Christianity called Nestorianism or Syriac Christianity. Now there'd be probably 60 or 70 million Protestants in China, probably, I don't know, 10 to 20 million Catholics. There, uh, may, there may be more Christians in China than any other country in a decade or two. Indeed so. Um, so when it comes to sinicization, at a very simple surface level, it means things like making religious architecture churches look more Chinese and less foreign. It means that in the singing of hymns, for instance, in Christian churches, it means singing them to Chinese tunes, not Western tunes. But it also means a kind of adherence to a certain kind of idea of what traditional Chinese culture is. And this feeds into this cultural nationalism, which is put about by the Communist Party as a kind of legitimizing principle. We find, for instance, Christian theologians of the quote-unquote patriotic variety searching through the Bible to find various verses that will say how people should be patriotic, for instance. What you're really talking about is obedience. And you can find passages in the Bible to help. Indeed you can. I mean, you can find passages in the Bible to support almost any position you wish. That's and render to Caesar yep. what is Caesar's. Exactly so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and also, can I, can I add something here? I mean, the, uh, what's the word for that, making things Chinese? Sinicization. Uh, okay, okay. So the sinicization of Christianity didn't start when Communist Party controlled China. It actually started before. Uh, so in the first part of the 20th century, there were already Chinese Christians, especially uh, some influential Protestant leaders trying to reform the church. And at that time, they were quite welcomed by the Communist Party because uh, they saw this kind of a reform and the way of doing religion is trying to cut ties with the Western influence in China. And one of the Chinese Communist 
argument is to make China a, a truly independent nation. So there was a honeymoon back to the early 1950s uh, when the Communist Party and some of the Protestant Christianity, and they worked together and they tried to reform the church in such a way that the Chinese church is truly independent uh, Chinese. Of course, uh, as things uh, goes later, even though these churches, they are independent from their foreign influence, uh, if they are also independent from the party state structure, then, of course, the honeymoon didn't last that long. On mm. Catholicism, um, Catholicism was the ideal case of the Chinese party rejecting a religion on the basis of quote-unquote foreign influence. Chinese Catholics were seen to have a loyalty that was beyond China, a loyalty in Rome. The reason why the Chinese government and the Vatican don't recognize each other to this day it surrounds the appointment of bishops. And in Australia and other Western countries, bishops are appointed by Rome. In China, the Chinese government Patriotic Catholic Association appoints bishops, which are not recognized by the Vatican. And the Vatican appoints bishops, often keeping their names secret for obvious reasons, that are not recognized by the Chinese government. So there have been ongoing discussions we are led to believe. We don't know exactly where it's at because, of course, when you're talking China and the Vatican, you're talking about probably the two least transparent governments in the world. <laughs> also unresolved is the situation in Hong Kong. We look at that next. RN, it's God forbid. Unrest persists in Hong Kong, sparked by that extradition bill that would have allowed for suspected criminals to be extradited to mainland China. Protesters believe that threatened the one country, two systems arrangement that exists in Hong Kong. And faith communities, in fact, have been part of the Hong Kong protest uprising. Kirsty Needham is the China correspondent at Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and she's speaking with Andrew West. Look, this influence is actually quite widespread when you scratch the surface. One thing I should clarify, though, unlike the Occupy Central and the Umbrella Movement of 2014, which had quite clear leaders and founders, many of whom were recently jailed for their role in organising that democracy movement, this time the opposition and the, the massive, massive protest that we've seen on the streets, one million and then two million the next week coming out, is very widespread amongst the community. It's drawn from different sectors, but we can certainly say that Christian groups, particularly the Catholic Church and Methodist and Baptist groups, are quite prominent. And I guess the most obvious sign of this is that the anthem of the protest movement is Sing Hallelujah to the Lord. Church groups and church choirs were coming out and just repeatedly singing Hallelujah to the Lord, and that continued right through to the next day until everyone was dispelled by tear gas and rubber bullets. Yeah. What is the basis then of these religious leaders mobilising many of their followers against this extradition law? They see it as a very direct threat to the operation of missionaries um, that go into China from Hong Kong, but also in the long term, Hong Kong's 
right to religious freedom. Hong Kong is a very religious city and the reason for this is that when the communists took over in 1949 and Shanghai was evacuated, a lot of the Shanghai elite were very strong Christians. They came across to Hong Kong and, you know, provided the economic basis for the global financial powerhouse that we see now. And so right throughout, not just the clergy themselves, but lawmakers, judges, right throughout the Hong Kong elite and throughout the school system, there's a very strong Christian faith there and they do see the encroachment of Beijing in recent years as a threat to their right to to go to church and to practice their faith. That's Kirsty Needham, the China correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, speaking on the Religion and Ethics Report. We'll put a link to the full interview on the webpage. Well, Yu Tao, is this exactly what Beijing feared most, uh, religion using its power to mobilise the flock against the mainland? I think that's part of the government's concerns there because religion does provide an alternative organisation. Having that said, you know, religion can also at times be used as a so-called constructive tools by the government. Um, for example, the recent development of the uh, relationship between China and the Catholic Church is that there are reports that since the very late of the last year, apparently the Vatican and Beijing has signed a bill where the two parties work together. And there are reports saying that following that deal, some of the CCP-appointed bishops, which were previously excommunicated by the Pope, were now welcomed back and they were appointed uh, as bishops uh, of certain regions. And this posed an interesting challenge to all the Catholics in China. And the same applied to many Catholics in Hong Kong, because we know that when the Occupy Central movement happened a few years ago, then the Catholic Archbishop of Hong Kong, he was a part of the leadership of that movement. Of course, now he retired. But if Pope has now had a deal with Beijing, if you could... Catholics, you probably should listen to the Pope. So does that mean actually, you know, some Catholics in Hong Kong will change their position and they are not go to the street uh, anymore? That's a possibility. But I, I think probably it's very, very difficult decisions that the local people have to make. Benjamin Penny, what's your assessment of the Hong Kong situation? I'm not sure that religion has a huge amount to do with it. Religious people... I think they are one part of a much, much larger movement. Your correspondent referred to Sing Hallelujah to the Lord as being the kind of anthem of the protests. According to the One Country, Two Systems system in Hong Kong, one of the things that the police are not allowed to do is to break up religious meetings. They can break up all kinds of meetings, but they can't break up religious meetings. The protesters... Uh, non-religious protesters and religious protesters together at one point when being attacked by the police would form into groups on the street in circles and start singing, sing hallelujah to the Lord, thus making themselves into a religious meeting and the police couldn't break them up. (laughs) Well, there you go. It's a good way to get converts. Karen Lai, how do you see Hong Kong ending? Well, I'd like to go back to whether religion 
plays a large part in this protest because it's a threat on religious freedom. We could see it the other way, you know, with the protesters actually quite embracing the churches joining them in their cause. We have heard the protesters asking for help from um, Britain. And so, you know, the, singing this um, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord, it's not a Chinese tune. It's definitely not a Chinese hymn. Therefore, you know, this is, this is one way out. We need help and this is where we go. Protesters, the more, if you have a shared cause, you want to join us, why not? The more the merrier. Yes. And also, can I just jump in here? Because the overlapping between religions and, and what nowadays we regard as secular, uh, you know, social phenomena or politics, you know, the links there are always strong and arguably even stronger in ancient times. So it's not a surprising thing that both parties trying to mobilize uh, religious community or religious groups to serve their own purpose, their own causes there. Well, on our end, up next, Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. Wits End! Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. This week, three contestants and three buzzers, each in the form of three quotes from President Donald Trump. OK, Karen Lai, test your buzzer. How could I dislike China? How could he? Benjamin Penny, who studied China for 40 years, test your buzzer. So don't tell me about China. I know China. He does. Yu Tao, who's only just back from Shanghai, test your buzzer. People from China, they love me. Yu Tao, is that true? Do people from China love Trump? I think a, a, a few people perhaps loves him, but I don't think many people really like Donald Trump. Maybe I'm biased. <laughs> First question. In 1997, which celebrity was banned from entering China? A, Tom Cruise, B, Brad Pitt, C, Philip Adams. It wasn't Philip. That's a clue. Any guesses? It mm. was Brad Pitt. Anyone guess why Brad Pitt was banned temporarily? Did he try to take his two dogs in? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's the other guy. Excellent answer, though. Um, It was for starring in the film Seven Years in Tibet. China was unhappy with the film's positive portrayal of the young Dalai Lama in the years before China's 1950 invasion. Now, the movie Seven Years in Tibet is based on a true story with Brad Pitt playing the Austrian mountaineer Heinrich Hara. Have a listen. When you're climbing, your, your mind is clear. And suddenly the light becomes sharper, sounds are richer, and you are filled with the deep, powerful presence of life. That performance earned Pitt a nomination in the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards. In what category was he nominated? So don't tell me about China. I know China. Benjamin Penny. A terrible accent? Correct. Most annoying (laughs) fake accent. You uh, have taken the lead. Next question. According to Tibetan Buddhism, when the Dalai Lama dies, his soul will be reincarnated in the body of a child. The Chinese government says when this happens, it will decide which child receives that reincarnated soul. But according to the president of the Tibetan government in exile, Lobsang Sangay, that would be like the Pope being appointed by A... Kim Jong-un, B, Fidel Castro, C, the Queen of England, or D, Kim Kardashian? (laughs) Any guesses? 
Fidel Castro was the point he was making. Next question. Fidel Castro's dead. Uh, Well, maybe when he (laughs) said it, he wasn't. Oh, okay. So that was a (laughs) trick question from the archives. And and, and isn't that Dalai Lama perhaps tries not to continue this tradition when he goes? That's true. The Dalai Lama was suggesting that he wouldn't be reincarnated, which had the curious result of then the uh, Beijing-approved Tibetan Buddhists saying it was the Dalai Lama was being blasphemous. Remarkable. Such is politics. Next question. In 1973, Australian Prime Minister Gough Whitlam met with Mao Zedong in Beijing. From this meeting comes a famous but apocryphal joke. Whitlam spoke of the assassination of President Kennedy and asked Mao what would have happened if Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev had been killed instead of Kennedy. What was Mao's apocryphal reply? Now, it's not true, we have to say, but it's a really good joke and many people think it is true, so it's worthy of being in the quiz. No guesses? Goff said to Mao, what would have happened if Khrushchev had been assassinated instead of Kennedy? Mao's answer, I'm pretty sure Aristotle Onassis would not have married Mrs Khrushchev. (laughs) (laughs) You know, James, there's another story. Henry Kissinger, when he first went to China, met Zhou Enlai, and he asked Zhou Enlai what he thought about the French Revolution. And Joan Lai replied, it's too soon to tell. Now, this has been, this has been passed on generation by generation uh, to show that the Chinese are, you know, deeply invested in long history, blah, 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 blah. It's actually nonsense. The transcripts of the interpreters have uh, been made available over the last few years. Kissinger said, what do you think about the French Revolution? This was translated directly as French Revolution in Chinese. The fact is that the French Revolution of the late 18th century is known as the Big French Revolution. When you say the French Revolution in that context at that time, it actually meant May 68 in Paris. So when Zhou Enlai said, it's too soon to tell, he was saying, well, you know, it's only a couple of years ago. It actually was too soon to tell. It was indeed too soon to tell. Yeah, but why do you have to ruin it? Ah, because I like ruining things. (laughs) (laughs) Because the truth is, is, is better even if it's more boring. Oh, no, it's not boring. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's see if who knows the truth in this question. In 2013, a YouTube video of a Sydney man went viral. The man would eat at five-star restaurants, Chinese restaurants in particular, and he'd do a runner when the bill came. Have a listen to his Shakespearean reaction when police tried to arrest him. And you, sir. Oh, that's a nice headlock, sir. Ah, yes. I see that you know your judo well. As police struggled to handcuff him, he rhetorically asked what was he being charged with? Was it A, eating a succulent Chinese meal, B, grand larceny, or C, dining and dashing? A, B, or C? Karen, you have a guess. C? C, dining and dashing. Here's the culprit with the answer. Some cups. What is the charge? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese meal? Uh, A <laughs> is correct. <laughs> now, next question. In the early days of broadband internet in Australia, a Telstra TV ad showed a young boy asking his dad for help on a school project. Have a listen. Dad, why did they make the Great Wall of China? 
The ad's message was, unless you get online, you won't be able to help your kids with their homework. And that was certainly the case with the Great Wall of China because Dad told his son it was built during the reign of A, Emperor Pad Thai, B, Emperor Nasi Goreng, C, Emperor Chow Mein, or D, Emperor Kung Pao. So don't tell me about China. I know China. Benjamin Penny. I think that was Pad Thai, was it not? Pad Thai, says Benjamin Penny. Here's Dad with the answer. Why did they make the Great Wall of China? That, that was during the time of Emperor Nazi Goring. Ah, Emperor Nazi Goring, also known as Indonesian fried rice. B, you're incorrect, Benjamin. The next question, though, still on the ad. According to the dad in the ad, why did they build the Great Wall of China? Any guesses? How could I dislike China? Keep the rabbits out? Keep the rabbits out, says Karen Lai. Let's have a listen. Why did they make the Great Wall of China? It was to keep the rabbits out. Too many rabbits in China. <laughs> OK, now Daniel will do his talk on China. Uh, and he failed his talk, but those were simpler times before broadband and well before NAPLAN. Final question. The mortar used in the Great Wall of China, and this is true, was made with A, mango pudding, B, sticky rice, C, chicken feet, or D, Bunnings outdoor mortar mix. People from China, they love me. Sticky rice. Sticky rice, says Yu Tao from our Perth studios. That's correct. Chinese chemists tested the mortar in 2010 and discovered it was made with sticky rice flour mixed with slaked lime. The inorganic and organic components apparently bound together so tightly it explains why along much of the wall weeds still don't grow out of the cement. So remember that next time you have a DIY home paving job. And with that, we've reached the end of God Forbid. Benjamin Penny, <laughs> thank you for being on God Forbid this week. Thank you, James. You Tao with the final correct answer. Thank you for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And Karen Lai answering, answering the rabbits in the Great Wall of China correctly. Thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome. Karen Lai, Associate Professor of Confucian and Taoist Philosophy at the University of New South Wales. Yu Tao, Lecturer and Coordinator of Chinese Studies at the University of Western Australia. And Benjamin Penny, Associate Professor and Senior Research Fellow at the ANU's Australian Centre for China in the World. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.